Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nick Morgan. Nick is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches and he is the author of multiple titles including Power Cues, Trust Me and Give Your Speech, Change the World. He is an expert on non-verbal communication skills and has coached and written extensively on this topic. And he's frequently called up and asked to critique speeches of of high-profile people, such as the campaign speeches of Barack Obama and the first official speech of Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge. His motto is, I believe that the only reason to give a speech is to change the world. Thanks so much for being here, Nick. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, understanding... The power of body language is, um, I think you described it as, it's not about having some sort of um, magical Hogwarts wizarding kind of powers. It's more about sort of like how to live your best life. So, I mean, if we are, you know, we're not achieving our best because of the verbal and non-verbal messages that we're conveying to the world, then this is something that we need to improve to get more from our lives. Is that, is that sort of a fair like, assessment, would you say? Yeah, I wish it were like Hogwarts. I would <laughs> love that. <laughs> and sometimes it's sometimes it's presented that way as if it was sort of black arts or or magic that you can do and and make people do things they don't want to do or that kind of thing. But that's not the way it works. That uh, really what it's about is uh, we spend all our time thinking about what we're going to say next. And in fact, some of us don't listen very well to other people because we're so busy thinking about what we're going to say next, and and so we don't even hear the conversation. But we think about what we're going to say, but we rarely think about how we're saying it. And when you are aligned, your content and your body language are aligned, they're saying the same thing, they're putting out the same message, then it all works and it's fine. But too much of the time, that's not the case. Our content is saying one thing, our body language is saying another. We're in a situation we're not comfortable, and so our body language is sending out nervous uh, signals, for example. That's a very simple, obvious one. Um, and what happens then is the body language always trumps the content, always. And so people end up taking away the body language instead of what you're saying. So all that effort you've put into figuring out what you're saying goes goes for nothing. And so that's why it, if you want to show up as your best self and you want to be a, a, an effective communicator, you simply have to uh, figure out and take charge of what your body language is saying. It's another conversation, and it's one that you can take control of. Because this, your, your sort of, um, uh, I don't know, journey, or this, how it all started, it started in a bit of a traumatic way. So you had, when you were 17, you had a tobogganing accident, right? And then you fractured your skull, you were in a coma for 10 days, and when you awoke, your brain was functioning, like, I think you did an IQ test, and it was like, yep, you're ticking all the boxes, but you had, you'd lost the ability to read people you knew. You couldn't read their body language. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that is. You've obviously done your homework. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, what happened was uh, all of us, with people that we know well, not not so much with strangers, but with people that we know very well, we can easily and quickly get a read on how they're feeling, unless we're one of those infamous people that are just clueless that way, (laughs) and there are people out there like that. You know who you are, so... uh, uh, but uh, for those, for the, for most of us, it, with our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, we can get a read on on uh, uh, how you're feeling right away. Especially if you've got a strong feeling, you come in, you're furious for some reason, or you're excited, or or you've had some great news, or terrible news, you're sad, or whatever. We, if there's a strong feeling, we pick up on that right away. Something had happened in that traumatic uh, brain injury that caused me to lose that ability. Uh, people later on have told me that it's similar. And I don't want to make any 
weird claims here, but it's similar to um, what some people on the autistic spectrum experience. That is, they can see the behavior, but they don't. They can't translate it into emotion, so they don't know how other people are feeling as clearly. That was, whatever the case, that's what had happened to me. So you can imagine at age 17, everything your friends say is either sarcastic or funny. <laughs> um, and, and so, for example, somebody would come up to me and say, Nick, you look great. And I would say, gee, thanks. And, and they'd say, no, you idiot, you don't look great. You look terrible. I was joking. And, and I would go, oh, really? How, how can I tell that? And, and so I started spending a lot of time trying to figure out what do people mean when they say um, you look great, but they really mean the opposite. And how do you decode that? How do you figure that out? So I studied body language until I sort of retrained myself consciously. So you were almost like a, um, yeah, just like almost had to just relearn everything from like some, from the basics to that. Did you kind of, were you, were you looking at more like analytically because, because you know, we, it was more just when we're growing up, it's, um, it's like, like you said, it's natural. You just understand it. You've, you've grown up, you just, you get it. Did you suddenly have to like, you re had to retrain your mind to actually understand everything like the, almost like the bricks and mortar of body language. Yes. Yes. And that was a very weird experience. <laughs> I felt very dissociated, very alienated and, and, of course, at age 17, you feel alienated anyway, but, but I felt really alienated. So uh, it was, a, it was a, a, a sort of a adolescent experience squared or on steroids or something. I was, I was uh, completely and utterly confused by what was going on around me, <laughs> even more so than the typical teenager. Um, now, human beings, like we're, I, I, you had a great blog, um, blog post about it. It was like, we're, we're, we're social beings, aren't we? Like, and we share, I think, mirror neurons. What, 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 what are mirror neurons all about? Yeah, I'm always surprised because they're such a big part of my life as a coach. I'm always telling people about mirror neurons, and I'm always surprised. That I just gave a speech the other day and to 400 um, college students, and and I said, how many of you have heard of mirror neurons? And two of them raised their hands, two out of 400. So <laughs> I thought, okay, I better give them a little education. So mirror neurons uh, are the way in which we humans basically are able to be empathetic. And so if I see you smiling and looking happy and high energy, then mirror neurons in my head will fire that happiness and high energy. So we literally leak emotions to each other. And typically the strong emotion overpowers the weak one. And so I say to people, think about this in an important communication situation like a job interview um, or let's say you're leading a team and you're going in to make a presentation or maybe you're giving a speech to 400 people. You're the one with the strong emotion. You're, if you're typical, you're nervous, right? The rest of the audience, the audience is just sitting around ho-hum, one way or the other, maybe they're slightly interested, maybe they're slightly bored, <laughs> they don't care at all, right? But if you come in with a whole lot of energy or a whole lot of nerves, that's the emotion that's going to leak to the audience. And especially because you're the one, in a case of a presentation, that's standing right in front of them. So you're going to leak your emotions to them. If you're nervous, then you're going to leak low-level nervousness to that audience. And when I ask the students, uh, the 400 students, so how do you imagine that makes you feel? They said, um, obviously, less willing to communicate, right? If you're feeling low-level nervousness, you don't want to listen. You want to get the heck out of there. So that's a very simple example of why it's important to get it right. And so uh, by understanding that, and can we then sort of 
not attack it, but like get it, get it, like go to straight to the core. And so by realizing that everything we do and say is then conveying this, do we then have to like work much harder on ourselves, on our own presentation, on our on our body language to like to counter that? Or what what what's sort of the 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 advice would you say? What I tell people is that just as you have been already intentional, more or less, about what what you're saying, your content. You think about what you're going to say before you say it. Uh, I say you can become intentional about your body language in the same way. And, and the way to do that is either to train yourself to manage, literally manage what you do with your body in space all the time, at least in important situations, or train yourself to manage your emotions because your emotions get expressed in your body. Um, and so you can work either way. Most people do a bit of both. They they learn to avoid the worst kinds of body language mistakes. Um, and hunched over, crouched, or like yeah, on I mean, course, so, yeah, obviously you don't go into a meeting. I'm I'm exaggerating here, raising my arms up, but you obviously you don't fold your arms. Everybody knows that because you look defensive, and maybe you're just cold, but you look defensive, so you don't want to do that. Right? I mean, so you learn to avoid some of these obvious ones, but then. The, the subtler work is to work on managing your emotions. So as, as uh, you must be able to do, um, get enthusiastic for a podcast when you're getting ready to do it, right? You get your energy up in some way. You maybe have a ritual you go through or, or maybe you're just naturally enthusiastic. You maybe <laughs> drink 18 cups of coffee. <laughs> I don't know what you do, but you know, I love the energy that's going on here. So that's great. That means you're doing some sort of work to uh, – to get ready for that, and and that's what we're talking about. As I just when when you like the idea about um, this crazy statistic, I, I had no idea it was anything near this. I mean, the unconscious mind is trying to is handling about eleven million bits of information per second. I, I, that, yeah. I just like couldn't believe that. And then on the contrast, like the conscious mind can only handle about forty bits of information, and it's constantly and like easily overwhelmed. You know, our conscious mind. So there is so much going on behind the scenes of the unconscious mind that we can't even imagine. So picking up all these little signals, is it? Yeah, that's right. And now, to be fair, a lot of those things that the unconscious mind are doing are, are pretty straightforward, like keeping your heart beating so you don't have to think about it and re- reminding yourself to breathe and keeping your body temperature roughly the same all the time. We, we're, we're made very uncomfortable uh, by ex- uh, swings in our body temperature. And so that's something the unconscious mind spends a lot of time doing. Um, but it also does things, and this is the, the weird part, it also does things like make decisions for us. Uh, and so we think we make our decisions consciously, that we're in charge, and th- that is our conscious minds are in charge. But that little conscious mind is essentially just uh, like a, a little tennis ball floating on this enormous uh, in this enormous swimming pool. Think of it that way: eleven million bits of information to forty. So, the little tennis ball is sort of bobbing around on the top of this huge body of water, barely able to uh, understand what's going on. Um, and and the way we find out what we think is through our body. So, the way the brain works is conscious mind. Um, gets the cue from the body, which gets its cue from the unconscious mind. So it goes, unconscious mind gets an intent, a desire, a wish, an emotion, an attitude, makes a decision like, I want to drink some water. 
to pick a simple <laughs> one. Then the body starts to move toward the water. And only after that do you become consciously aware. And you go, oh, I must be thirsty because my hand is reaching for the water. Now, there, there's a typically only a millisecond delay. And so we're not con- it doesn't feel like a lag to us. We're not consciously aware of that lag. Uh, but it can be up to nine seconds that the body makes a decision or the unconscious mind makes a decision, starts to express it in the body, and we don't become consciously aware of it uh, for nine seconds. But it's typically milliseconds. And we think, because it's like what we, a lot of us go through life thinking that we're rational beings, we're making these decisions consciously. But there's, yeah, like you said, there's you know, all this stuff behind the scenes. I love that. Yeah, and once you're attuned to it, uh, what's fun about it is if you start to watch other people, you can see the decisions they're making before they do. Um, before they're aware of it. And usually, as I say, it's only a couple of milliseconds before they're aware of it. But you can see the the, uh, the movement in the body start towards something that you like or away from something that you don't like. I'll tell you a quick story that illustrates this. So uh, when my son Eric was four years old, uh, we were visiting Grandma and Grandpa. And Grandma was teaching his older sister how to knit. So she was three years older. So she was about seven, and so grandma and and granddaughter are knitting, and they're sitting close together, and they're doing their little knitting thing, and they're laughing and having a good time. Eric comes in and sees this little tableau, and he says, oh, grandma, can you teach me how to knit? He's four. (laughs) Legitimate question. And all grandma did at that point was she went like this. She just pulled her head back slightly, probably about half an inch, and maybe she raised her eyebrows just a, just a hair. So it was just that little expression of surprise. Now, humans are incredibly sensitive to motions of the head especially, but of the body in general, toward us or away from us. And we know that a little motion back like that, an expression of surprise, means, oh, what's going on here? That's a weird thing to say. And so what Eric said at age four, mind you, was, that's okay, Grandma, never mind. And he started walking out of the room. And I always tease Grandma after that, that she taught Eric a lifetime of sexism with a half-inch movement of her head. <laughs> age four. <laughs> At age four. And she always says, but I did call out after him, that's okay, Grandma, that's okay, Eric, boys can learn to knit. And what he said was absolutely revealing. He said, never mind, Grandpa and uh, Grandma, and kept walking. And the reason was... Body language always trumps content. He knew the real message was the movement of the head, not her words trying to, uh, trying to undo the damage. So uh, that's just a very simple example of how powerful even slight motions of uh, the body is. And there, Eric picked up on that at age four, mind you. That shows you how quickly we learn these things. At age four, he picked up on on the message that grandma was was saying and no amount of words that she said after that could undo it. And one thing I'd love to discuss with you is um, storytelling. Mm. What is it about storytelling that is just, that's so powerful when trying to convey, I know, yeah, well, that's so powerful basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's, what most people don't get about stories and I think an awful lot of modern movies and television are to blame for this Um, most people don't get about stories, that stories are a combination of fulfillment of expectation and surprise. And what's happened is 
too many storytellers don't know how to tell real great wonderful stories, um, and they and they spend put all their effort in trying to shock the audience, and so you have the bomb that suddenly goes off with no preparation, and 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 you think, oh, what a great surprise! Or you, we've all had the experience of watching some un, unfolding TV show, and it turns out that so and so is somebody else's mother and they're living in incest and, uh, <laughs> you know what a shock right i mean those kind of shocking things um, that aren't prepared for by the story that's not good storytelling that's a desperate effort by the storyteller to regain your interest because they haven't given you a good story and because they think shock is the way to go and it's not a good story fulfills our expectations we've heard the story many many times before um, it's just the details, this particular version that's different. And so let me give you an example, and then it'll make sense. So uh, the, the quest story is one of the deep stories that we've been telling each other for thousands of years. And we all know the shape of a quest story. So a quest story has a young hero. The hero, either because of some exciting opportunity or some terrible incident, goes out on a journey to try to achieve some goal at the end. Right, So think Star Wars, because that's just about to come out again. Think young Luke Skywalker. His aunt and uncle are murdered, and so and he gets a message about some rebel thing. So he goes out on a quest to find this rebel base and become a Jedi Knight. Right? We all know the shape of that story. We know that Luke is going to have many adventures along the way, and we know this, the, the, the tougher the ups and downs, the, the more difficult the adventures that he faces, the more he deserves to win that goal at the end, the more the cooler that goal will feel when he actually gets there, right? We know exactly how that story's going to work. We don't know the individual moments along the way. We expect some little surprises, but we know this story is about reaching that goal, and we know the end of the story will come when he does reach that goal. Um, and so we have a whole... Uh, set of expectations about that story that we want fulfilled. And a good storyteller knows that and fulfills those expectations for us, gives us a few little surprises along the way, but doesn't mess with the overall structure because that's so deeply satisfying so that we can celebrate with Luke when he finally stands there on the, uh, on the stage at the end and gets his gold medal and everybody cheers, right? We, we are there with him at that moment. He's achieved whatever it is that uh, he wanted to achieve. That's good storytelling. So if, if, it's, if it's got this amazing arch in it and we understand that, why is good story hard? Because why isn't all Hollywood blockbusters like, you know, doing smash hits all the time? Is it because of those nuances? Is it because they, they go off the map? They try and mess with the formula? or? Yeah, well, Hollywood specifically makes two mistakes. So every movie they, they spend more than $100 million on, a big blockbuster, as you alluded to, they, they think there's only one story, that, and that is the quest. Uh, and so um, they always tell. There are actually four other strong stories that are equally good, um, but Hollywood is convinced that there's only the one. And so they try to squeeze their particular idea into the quest format, and that's not always the story. That sometimes works. It works great with Star Wars, but it doesn't work with every single situation. You, that, that's not the only story in the world. And so sometimes they try to squeeze the wrong material into, into that uh, quest arc. Now, the other mistake they make is that 
they fear that that quest story precisely has been told so many times that it's boring for the audience. And so they, as you suggest, they mess with the formula. They do something different just to shock you. You know, they, they have the, the, the hero decide halfway through that he's not going to go for that goal and go do something else. Right? That's stupid. That's bad storytelling because that deep structure is why we like that story and it's been time tested. And so we don't want you messing with that. But that's the mistake that Hollywood makes and a lot of other storytellers. They, they fear that it's sort of too obvious if they tell one of the basic fundamental stories. And so they mess with it at their peril and they just make matters much, much worse. And what was so? What is the what's the importance of understanding? So, obviously, like we're not all writing, you know, blockbuster films. But in terms of like our personal life, understanding how to craft a story, how to uh, tell a message, how to take people on a journey. Like, why is that so important personally? Like, why do I need to know? Why do you need to know? What's what's why is that so powerful? Well, if I'm if I'm ever going to lead a team of people, if I'm going to get involved in the business world or organizational life of any kind, not for profits, whatnot. And let's say I'm a leader. If, if I want to inspire my team to do something, then I need to tell them a story, which then they participate in and become part of. Um, if, if I'm a, a leader of a team that's trying to bring out a new product that's never been brought out before, if I enlist my team in a quest, if I tell them we're on a quest and I hold out the goal as the launching of that successful launching of that product, then I will enlist them in a cause that's larger than just themselves. If I tell them, on the other hand, you're going to get your salary every week, uh, you're going to come in and put in your hours, that's all I expect of you, then that's all I'll get out of them. Um, but if I if I tell them a story, then they're participating in one of the deep stories that humanity tells itself. They love that. That gives them a reason for living. These stories are essential to keep us interested and motivated because life, you may have noticed, is actually just chaotic. It's pretty much unpredictable and chaotic. But we tell ourselves these stories in order to make some sense out of life and to give it some meaning for us. And so what these stories do is give our lives meaning. So when we fall in love, we tell ourselves the love story that allows us to make meaning out of that relationship and takes us through the tough times of a relationship. In the same way, if we're on a quest in our, in our uh, job uh, situation, in, in our work life, then we're going to get much more meaning out of that work than if we just think of it as a paycheck. Mm. And so can everyone make a huge impact in the world if we just know how to craft and communicate this message correctly? Like, if we, is, that, is that almost the starting point? Rather than just to go out, sh- should we almost focus on getting the story right and then is that is that the is that the foundations before doing anything i'm just personally trying to work i'm working yeah. on myself yeah that's a really interesting question it's it's uh it's not always easy to find the story that has meaning for you and that and that you can infect others with right it's that's not a simple process that's that's the process of uh of finding yourself and finding what your particular role is on the planet. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to pretend that's simple for people um, because there, there are an awful lot of other people out there trying to enlist us in their stories and trying to get us to do what they want us to do. So, uh, and, and a lot of life intervenes and isn't a story and is chaotic and gets in the way of our stories. And so we can easily get derailed if 
bad stuff happens, right? And, and, we, and we feel like we're off our story. So I would say, yeah, I would say that's really important work because that's the way in which we make sense of life. But I'm not going to pretend it's easy to do or easy to find what your story is, the one that's going to give you the most satisfaction. Yeah. In such like an online world today with Facebook, Twitter, email, just this, you know, everything, how important is authentic face-to-face interactions? Well, it always has been important. It's even more important um, in the online world. And, and the reason is uh, we can build back in a little bit because you and I are having a, a, a video chat. And so we get some of the clues. But even a video chat doesn't have as many clues as if we were together in the same room. And so that face-to-face communication is just much, much richer and more interesting. And it allows our unconscious minds to communicate at that 11 million bits of information a second. <laughs> uh, so we exchange a lot of information that, that your conscious mind and my conscious mind are simply not aware of. Right? All of that can happen in person. Much, much less obviously happens on a telephone call. A little more happens on a video call, but video, it's important to remind people, is still only two dimensions, and it's not a three-dimensional experience. So it's it's a little more impoverished, a little less meaningful. And so in the virtual world, it becomes even more important. And that's that's what my next book is on, actually, is uh, how we manage to communicate holistically and, and powerfully in a world where so much of our communication is this pitiful thin stream that you get online, right? We think that it's rich. We feel information overloaded. But what we're not is is uh, emotion overloaded. We're not <clears> – <throat> our unconscious minds aren't getting the kinds of powerful um, uh, exchange that we get from a hug, say – or a kiss, or uh, you know, or just a beer with friends. I mean, that kind of uh, face-to-face communication. Things happen in that the unconscious mind exchanges information that just simply doesn't happen uh, online, um, and we we can fill it up the online experience. And that's why I think we're so compulsive about it. And like, and we we check email constantly. We're always on Facebook, right? I think because it's it's thin gruel. It's not as interesting. So we we try to compensate by just picking more and more and more and more of it right but it's not it's not the same what does a fulfilled life mean to you so a fulfilled life for me is and you said it uh, earlier on is living that story and but living that story that you choose intentionally so it doesn't just happen to you that it's the story that you you know that you've chosen and that you're living intentionally. And it won't be perfect necessarily, and you won't necessarily achieve all you dream uh, of achieving. But if you're on that journey at least, then you know where you're headed. It's intentional. Life makes sense. What is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? (laughs) I'm going to surprise you. I'm I'm not going to talk about storytelling for a second. I'm going to say... (laughs) The thing you can do, the, the, the simple and almost weird thing you can do is start to pay attention to your body language and try opening up in moments when your inclination is to go closed and to protect yourself. Try opening up instead. I mean, obviously, if you're being attacked by muggers, don't open up at that point. <laughs> but, 
but I'm, I'm talking about in safe, normal, everyday situations. When we're in the business world, when we're meeting people for the first time, our unconscious tendency is to close up one way or another. Instead, try opening up and just see what happens, and you'll be surprised at the connections that you can make. I love that. Good advice. And which book would you say has had the biggest positive impact on you? <laughs> Um, I'm going to embarrass myself now by saying it was the Lord of the Rings. When I read that as a teenager, I read that 12 times. Uh, and I actually dreamed about Middle Earth and taught myself the various languages I was so excited about. I lived so thoroughly in that world for uh, for at least several years before when? before the, the real world became, became interesting again. I don't know. So that I have to say that's the book that's made the most profound impression on me. Uh, about about five ten minutes ago, when you mentioned uh, about the quest, the hero's quest, just before you mentioned Star Wars, immediately like Lord of the Rings was the one that first like, popped into my head, like as a classic sort of quest. Yeah, I love that. It's a real find too. I just stumbled on it in the library, so uh, I recommend to everybody wander around the library and just grab a book down that has interesting typeface that looks interesting to you because <laughs> you never know what you may find. For me, that just opened up an imaginary world I had no idea existed. It was it was incredible. Last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more about you and your work? Sure. Go to uh, publicwords.com, sign up for my blog, uh, and um, you can email me. The email is on the website there, but that's where it all happens. That's, uh, that's where we tell the world what we're doing. Nick, thank you so, so much for talking to me today. It's been so much fun. Pleasure. It's great to chat with you. <laughs> <laughs>